John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hi, this is Steve. There are movies that are pretty straightforward. There's no real ambiguity in Star Wars or The Princess Bride. No hidden messages in Singing in the Rain or Die Hard. What we get out of those movies is pretty much exactly what the filmmakers wanted us to get. However, there are other films where things aren't quite so simple, where our reactions say as much about who we are as they do about the film itself. Patton, written by Francis Ford Coppola, directed by Franklin Schaffner, and starring Carl Malden and the incomparable George C. Scott in the titular role, is just such a movie. Patton is a generational and political wedge, a litmus test for our perspective on war, patriotism, and masculinity itself. If you were part of the youth culture in 1970, protesting the Vietnam War, fighting for civil rights, and maybe dropping a bit of acid with your long-haired friends, Patton was an explosion of the American myth, an exploration into the darkness, violence, and fundamental narcissism of one of the older generation's so-called heroes. However, if you supported the war, saw America as the strong, shining hope of the world, and believed the current generation was losing sight of the courage, discipline, and sacrifice necessary to protect our country and our way of life, then Patton is the tough, ass-kicking, uncompromising hero we need today. So, what's the truth about this strange, compelling, brilliant, and frustrating icon? Well, the only way to answer that question is by watching the movie, which you can buy or stream along with every other film we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And a few weeks ago, we asked you on social media which movie from the year 2010 was your favorite and why. John and I discussed those answers and give a few thoughts of our own in our latest Cinephile short on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. So that's a discussion of the films of 2010 on Patreon and part one of Patton this Friday on The Cinephiles. The Nazis are the enemy. Wade into them. Spill their blood. Shoot them in the belly. 
when you put your hand into a bunch of goo that a moment before was your best friend's face, you'll know what to do. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey everyone, my name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here of The Outlaw Nation and a voiceover artist as well, and a former military man. So I'm incredibly excited for us to be talking about uh, this particular film. Today's film is something we've been talking about for a long time, and it's a film that has such an important history in, in cinema, and one that has kind of an interesting... I, I've watched it many times over the years, and that film is Patton. Yeah. John, do you remember how you first came to Patton? Yeah, um, I rented it, I think, uh, when I was renting, you know, those movies and getting, uh, getting catching up on the AFI stuff, probably back in my teenage years. I remember seeing it for the first time uh, before I went into the military, so certainly mm. as a teenager. Uh, and just, I remember being blown away by it. You know, I was always one of these guys that gravitated to the more old school actors. Sorry, certainly George C. Scott fell into that. Uh, bucket, um, and uh, I was just curious about this film because of the picture of it on the cover, you know, this massive American flag and uh, Patton standing in front of it, so uh, it just kind of caught my eye, and so I heard it was great, and I remember watching it, and it's been one that I've watched many, many times since um, for any number of reasons, so yeah. I watched it the first time on TV probably when I was 12 or 13 mm -hmm. and I just it was so different from every anything else I had ever seen at that point yeah you know I and I think like 12 13 starting to go into high school and that era is when things go from being like the simple good guy bad guy stuff into being more complex and Patton definitely fell into the I love him and I hate him and I don't know how to feel and you know and was it better that we had him or better that we didn't and I think that introduced me to a different style of filmmaking and i think what's so interesting we've talked about these films that are the bridge between the old school hollywood films and the films of the 70s right you know right. and we've talked about like guess who's coming to dinner as one and 1776 which we just did really has that mix of it's an old school musical and yet it has some darkness and some complexity that is unexpected yeah. and i think Patton's another one that you know in a lot of ways it's the old school war movie yeah, it's it's a war movie masquerading as an anti-war movie. This is something I've discovered about the films I've watched over the last few years, is that it it is very definitely an anti-war movie. And as you see the interactions, as you see um, the close-ups on the devastation and the costs of war uh, that Franklin J. Schaffner does an incredible job of highlighting throughout the movie, um, I have put away this rah-rah feeling I had about it when I was growing up right. and and more embraced what Coppola was trying to say with his script, um, uh, which is basically that war is hell and that uh, it's not something to be glorified. It's not something to be, um, you know, uh, I don't know what glorified, I guess. It's not something to be glorified like we saw in the old war films, something to be lauded or something to be aspired to or be excited about or bang your chest about because the cost is limbs and lives and 
even from the opening scene, which I know we'll get to when we start, but opening scene of seeing the American soldiers getting their bodies stripped. Like there was, I had such a visceral reaction to watching that uh, for this, watching the film again for this uh, episode, watching that happen. You know, we're knee deep in in uh, uh, what's going on in our world and our country and the military is such an essential part of it. People keep referencing the military and seeing these young men getting their clothes ripped off of them, their, their weapons taken from them, their boots taken off, their jewelry taken off, and all this in some, you know, um, campaign to stop some evil happening in the world. So, you know, war is not pretty. Well, and, and you touched on something that I definitely want your perspective on as someone who served in the military and what your feelings are and what you would have felt to be serving under a guy like George S. Patton. (laughs) Um, uh, In preparation for this episode, I read, I reread a book that I'd read a few years ago, which is called Brothers, uh, Rivals, Victors. Hmm. And it is about the relationship between Eisenhower, Omar Bradley and Patton. Yeah. And their relationship starts well before the war. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of kind of the setup of these people, and in particular the setup of Patton, because he is a fascinating person. He was born in 1885 in California, another California boy like me. He had a came from a wealthy family. Hmm. This was one of the richest officers in the army. Um, His family is descended not only from Welsh lords, but has family connections to George Washington. He's a distant relation of Edward I of England, and he, they believe that he has multiple ancestors that signed the Magna Carta. <laughs> I mean, that just shows you like where this guy comes from. Yeah. Uh, it comes from a military family. His grandfather was a general on the Confederate side under Jubal Early and was killed in the Civil War. Wow. Well, yeah, kind of kind of reminds me of Lieutenant Dan in that uh, sequence in Forrest Gump, where like <laughs> totally. different versions of his family died from different wars. Yeah, um, he went to West Point. He had serious problems in academics. Had to repeat math. Struggled with reading and writing, but strangely enough, excelled at military discipline, at mm. drill, and at athletics. Shocking, and that's where he started uh, fencing. And joined the track team and became a pentathlete in the modern wow. pentathlon and competed in the 1912 Olympics. Mm. Wow. I didn't yeah. Know okay. I mean, I, that's why this guy is so interesting. Mm. And here's, and I just want to say, I said, this is how he finished in the Olympics is that he was seventh in swimming. Yeah. The pentathlon, by the way, is the coolest of all Olympic events, I think, because it's basically like being a pirate. It's, it's swimming, running, shooting, fencing, and what's the other one? Uh, and equestrian, horse riding, you know, like it's like being an old school adventurer. So he was seventh in swimming, fourth in fencing. So fourth in fencing at the Olympics, sixth in equestrian, third in running. And he finished with an overall uh, like fifth or sixth, I think, overall. And he was the highest uh, level uh, competitor that wasn't Swedish. Apparently, <laughs> the Swedes ran the pentathlon, and there was a controversy, which is that for the pistol shooting, everybody else was using 22 caliber pistols. He used the 38. Shockingly, George (laughs) wanted a bigger gun, and uh, they found fewer holes in the target. So the judges said, you missed the target. And George said, no, I shot a bullet through the hole. That's why I didn't. (laughs) That's why I didn't. You don't see another hole. And if he had been right, he would have meddled. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Um, uh, he fought against Pancho Villa in 1915 under General Pershing. Uh, he's a cavalry man, and that's really important to his character because the cavalry have that 
um, attitude. They have that sense of adventure and courage and old school sort of stuff that really fits his character, his character. Um, and he, in World War One, is when he started to discover tanks. And the mm-hmm. cavalry transitioned from riding horses to being tanks. And he was one of these people. He was in World War One very briefly. He was wounded in battle and was uh, taken out. He, he received, made it to the rank of colonel. And then after the war, when they, the army shrunk back down again, all their ranks went down. So he went back down to being a captain, I think, or a major. Um, and he's one of these people who just push for what a tank could be originally tanks were just there to support the infantry and what Patton and a few other people believed including eisenhower is that no tanks can do all this other stuff uh which certainly is true in terms of world war ii and then he got stationed with eisenhower and they became best friends Hmm. Patton, six years older than ike was always senior to him um they would apparently play poker against each other ike always went one and Patton didn't mind because he was rich yeah. and he was into polo and yachting and all the stuff that he brought Ike along on. And here's what something he said in the twenties, he said to Ike, when the next war comes 20 years from now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to be Jackson. You be Lee. I don't want to do the heavy thinking. You just let me loose along among our fucking enemies. I love it. Yeah. Some people know what they're best at in life, and certainly someone like Patton, who has certainly proved uh, from what you just uh, told us here with the pentathlon and what have you, um, he's very aware of what he can and can't do and how hard he can push himself and where he belongs, you know, and certainly failing in academics probably initially probably uh, let him know very clearly, these are the things I am good at studying and coming up with an overall battle plan maybe not the best thing i'm i'm best at politics maybe not the best thing i'm best at but you let me loose among on a battlefield and i will bring you a victory you know well and it's interesting too is that ike and omar bradley they played football they were into right. team sports right. Patton played polo and right. pentathlon he's Fencing. into these yep. individual sports right so in 1932, there was something called the, the um, do you know about the bonus army demonstrations? I don't. Tell me about that. So this is, it's just so contemporary thing, is in 1932, we're in the beginnings of the Depression, and the World War I veterans had been promised all of this um, pensions, uh-huh. all, the, all this money, and they weren't getting paid. So I think it's about 20,000 veterans marched in Washington, D.C. Wow. And Hoover, who was still president at the time, called out the army to break up the demonstrations. This is the last time the army was used on U.S. soil against peaceful demonstrations. For now. And it's yeah. General Douglas MacArthur who did this. And his one of his lieutenants is Colonel George S. Patton. Wow. And Patton was given the order. He was a cavalryman. So they mounted up on horses with fixed bayonets and tear gas and they drove these veterans, these are World War I veterans, yeah. off of the mall in Washington, D.C. Right. Eisenhower was a junior officer on MacArthur's staff, and he continually said, don't do this. Yep. And you know what the uh, veterans chanted at Patton as they drove him away? What? Shame, shame. <laughs> it's just kind of amazing to me that that happened, you know? Yeah, um, when you're young... You can convince yourself of so many things, and especially when you're in the military, because the military drills it into you to believe a certain thing. You you don't question orders. You follow orders. And for some people, they do that, and it works for them. 
there's a there's a construct of a society I can function in. I know that I don't have to question orders. I can just do this. And it's not my responsibility because I didn't give the order. I'm just following orders. And then there are other people like Eisenhower who question the orders. And this is why he is in when he, when World War II happens, he's in charge of everything because he understands the bigger picture, right? Yep. Uh, we see this in Henry V when Henry when Henry is uh, hiding out amongst his troops and has the conversation with them. Uh, and there are some troops that say, well, uh, whatever I do in battle tomorrow, my sin is washed away because the king commanded the battle. I don't have any responsibility. And the king in disguise says, well, that's not 100 percent true because what you do on the battlefield is your responsibility. So if you do dirty stuff on the battlefield or you cheat or you're evil on the battlefield, that's your thing to carry. The king does not uh, wipe away your sins uh, just because he commanded you to be on the battlefield. So there's that kind of argument about, well, what should you think? And the army, of course, or the military tries to get away by saying, well, if you feel a, an order is against your morality, it is your responsibility to question it. Yet when you question it to your superiors, they don't go, oh, you know what? That's a good point. Let's take a look at it. They get really offended by it because they think you're personally questioning them. And so that becomes an issue in the military as well. So it's it's a quagmire of shit half the time or well, three this quarters is, of the time. Well, and this is certainly something we're going to get into when we get to Omar Bradley and Patton. True. The idea of what do you do with your superior officer or your inferior officer when you don't quite agree? Yeah. Um, after this in the 30s, Patton really seems like he hits a real midlife crisis. He's drinking a lot. His career isn't going where he thinks it should go. There's no war for him to fight. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do. And at the same time that Patton's going a little bit downhill, Eisenhower goes to Panama with General Connor to organize troops there. And this is where Ike evolved because mm -hmm. Connor gave him philosophy to read. He pushed him on leadership. He had to deal with logistics, cooperations with a different country because they're in Panama. Mm -hmm. And this is, he learned how to work in the system. And Patton, of course, is the opposite. Can't figure out how to work inside the system. What Patton saw systems as is dogma. Yeah. Here's what he said to Eisenhower. He said, we talk and talk, but never get to brass tacks. What is it that gets that poor SOB to fight? And in what formation is he going to fight? The answer to the first is leadership, but the second I don't know. And he says to Ike, you should stop thinking about moving supplies and start thinking about how to get the army to move under fire because victory in the next war depends on execution, not plans. You see? And that is very clear what he's, his mentality is, yep. right? And this is also what subsequently leads to his downfall for the most part is this idea of not being able to see the bigger picture and only what's in front of him and bull his way into victory, right? Not looking at the overall things that should be happening, uh, uh, over, you know, in, in this situation. You know, it's clear. It's very clear. General Marshall becomes chief of staff just as World War II is beginning. And here is what the ranks of these three guys is in 1940. Patton has become a two-star general. Wow. Already. Ike is a full bird colonel. Omar is a lieutenant colonel. And, but Marshall sees something in Omar Bradley. He says, this guy is special. And he sends him off to some military academy. I can't remember which one. It's not West Point. And he promotes him up to a brigadier general. So skips colonel entirely yeah. in order to, and he basically, Omar Bradley becomes like the premier troop trainer in the country. Like he is the guy and they send him from base to base to get troops into shape in the right before World War II. <laughs> they set up a major war game, huge war games. And the two people commanding the two off armies is Patton versus 
Eisenhower. <laughs> Day one, Ike wins. Right. Day two, Patton breaks all the rules. I'm totally picturing the Dirty Dozen, <laughs> and he totally wins yeah. and gets a lot of credit. He pulls a Kirk. Yeah. Um, after Pearl Harbor, Marshall realizes he needs someone top-notch on his staff, and he writes to General Clark, who's a very important general of World War II, and he says, send me a list of the 10 best officers in the country to come onto my staff. And General Clark says, look, I can send you a list, but it's just going to be one name written 10 times. Dwight David Eisenhower. And so Marshall goes to meet Ike. They've never met before. Hmm. And here's what here's here's the meeting. Imagine this is your job interview. This general set lays out the entire world situation. Every army, every troop, every ally, every troop position, you know, what the, the supplies lines are. And he says, What would you do? <laughs> and Ike says, Can I have an hour to think about it? And Marshall <laughs> says, Yes, you can have one hour. And Ike goes away for an hour and he comes back and he lays out an entire strategy for the world military situation. Wow. And what Marshall said is that it didn't even matter whether or not he agreed with the strategy. He needed somebody who could make decisions on his own. Yeah. Somebody who could think for themselves. And that man was Eisenhower. And he, it's so funny because, you know, we, we just saw Hamilton. Mm. I, Ike becomes his right hand man. Yeah. He's a right hand man. Right. Um, and so now suddenly Ike is superior to Patton. And Patton has to come to Ike to get a job. Six months earlier, Ike was begging Patton to give him a job. Hmm. Um, and Welcome to the world, kids. Yeah. Welcome to the world. You never know. Um, <laughs> literally, <laughs> I, I can't tell you what, you know, when I met you guys and I met Vogel and Ross, they wanted to, they came to ask me for a job. <laughs> and then a few years later, I was asking them for a job. So yep. it definitely just, happens that way. You just um, never know. And Patton, there's the situation in Africa is going on, and they know that's where they're going to send their troops first. And Ike suggests Patton for Africa. And Patton goes to Marshall and says, look, I won't do it unless you give me two uh, divisions. I need two divisions to do this. And Marshall says, you only get one. He says, no, you have to give me two divisions. And Marshall ices him. He's, he won't return his phone calls. He won't communicate with him. He just completely shuts him down. And Patton is writing to Eisenhower and everybody else he knows, like, look, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. you got to get me this job. I really want to do it with one division. I'll do it. Whatever, you know, just give me a, you know, a platoon, whatever you want. And Marshall totally did it on purpose. He knew that he was going to have Patton do the job. He just needed to show him who was boss. Yeah, yeah. Marshall, by the way, handles everybody really well. He's one of the, and this is, of course, when you hear the Marshall plan, that's who we're talking about. Right. Um, so all three of these guys, Patton, Bradley, and Ike, they all knew each other. They all had sort of developed in the same time between World War I and World War II. They all came to be known by General Marshall, who knew these three guys were going to be really important in the war. Mm -hmm. And that leads us to uh, where we are in the film. And the way this film starts is it starts with um, General Frank McCarthy, who served under Marshall. Mm-hmm. And after the war, he went to work at Fox under Daryl Zanuck and became a producer. And he continually, from about 1953, kept saying, I want to make a movie about Patton. And they tried it in all sorts of different ways. They even went to the Patton family and said, look, we want your permission. We want to make this movie about George Patton, who, is, who had passed away already. Mm -hmm. And the day that they went to see the Pattons was the day that Mrs. Patton, George's wife, died. Day after oh. she died. Wow. Their timing was poor. Yes. <laughs> and the Patton family said, no way. You're a bunch of jerks. <laughs> they try to make this movie for seven years. Finally, in 1960, they shelve it. And we're not going to do this. 
Then, and Zanuck has left Fox, then he comes back to Fox with his son, uh, Richard Zanuck, mm. um, and his partner, David Brown, who was Zanuck and Brown that made Jaws and The Sting and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And they revive this idea of Patton, and they hire this young 24-year-old kid named Francis Ford Coppola to write the screenplay. Coppola writes a crazy screenplay, particularly for 1963. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not where the world is. And what Coppola says is it was particularly the opening, that big speech that's so famous that everyone looked at, like they wanted Burt Lancaster to play Patton. Oh, wow. And Lancaster looked at this script that had this speech and poetry and reincarnation. He's like, this movie's way too weird. <laughs> I, I don't want to do this. Can't do it, fellas. Yeah. It's too weird. Yeah. And they shelve it again. And they drop Coppola's option and it goes away again for five or six more years until they bring back, bring on Edmund North to write a new version of the script. And they call up George C. Scott, who um, Coppola says he pictured George C. Scott in the role from the beginning. No. That's who he wrote it for. Mm -hmm. And Scott looks at it and goes, I don't really like the script and I don't like Patton. I don't want to, I don't want to do this. Right. And they go, Oh, you don't like this script. And they will hold on a sec. And they show him the Coppola script. They had only <laughs> showed him the Edmund North script. He sees the Coppola script and he goes, okay, I'll do it. Except I will not do that opening speech. Because <laughs> if we have the speech be the opening of this movie, it'll ruin the rest of the movie because nothing will live up to it. Wow. And it's, and it's weird, too, because when does that speech take place? Exactly. You know, yeah. it's a very strange yeah. thing. It's a good and point. and uh, Schaffner, the director, who had just come off of doing Planet of the Apes, also with Zanuck and Fox, um, says, oh, you, you know what? We've decided to move the speech. We're going to put it at the at, before Act Two, right after the intermission. And George C. Scott goes, OK, I'll do it. And they never had any intention of putting it there. They just needed him to shoot the scene. Of course, of course. Um, and at this point, too, they brought on Omar Bradley. For, he had written his book, A Soldier's Story, I think it is. And Omar Bradley becomes the consultant on the film. He's there on the set all the time, which is really, really weird. I'm sure for Carl Malden, it must be incredibly weird. Yeah. Well, and for Omar Bradley, who there's a very strong argument that he is way more important than Patton. Sure. In terms of winning that war. But to, it's not a character. Yeah, to character. have to be helping out on the movie about this guy who <laughs> he had a lot of problems with is pretty weird. Yeah. And, and again, you know, as we said, like now we're in the midst of Vietnam. And so there's this weird pressure on this movie. It is both a old school war movie and it is a 70s Vietnam era movie, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so would you like to get into this film? Let's do it. I'm excited. I don't know what to say about this opening. Like it's maybe the greatest opening of any film ever. Honestly, it is so unbelievable. Mm -hmm. We're staring at just a giant American flag and up from the steps from below rises general Patton. And I love how they framed it because his feet are like right at the bottom of the frame. Yeah. So it's almost like you're looking on a, on a stage. Well, it's also perfect, Steve, because you hear the chatter and having mm -hmm. been in the military, that's what you, you all sit around and shooting, talking all, you know, probably talking about, oh, what's this speech going to be? Blah, blah, blah. And then you hear, Ten Hut! Ten Hut! And then you hear the feet shift yep. and silence. And I think that's brilliant, right? It gets you right into the mood of a military film, also gets you into the mood, or it gets you the idea that this guy commands this kind of attention, this level of attention. And you hear uh, Revelry. I think it's Revelry, isn't yeah. it? The plays. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not Revelry, though. 
it's bum ba dun 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 dun. And then we have this moment where he's just standing there, so imposing. And we go, zoom in on, not zoom in, and we cut to these inserts of the medals and the four stars and the ivory-handled revolvers and his eyes under the helmet. And it's just like, what is happening? And it's old school, isn't it? Like, okay, you're going to respect this guy. You're, you've seen the medals. It's, it's a way of tricking the audience into thinking it's going to be an old school kind of war film uh, in the way. And, and, you know, immediately it's showing the audience you have to respect this man. He's oh, yeah. earned these things immediately. So before he even starts, you as an audience member are a ten hut and command, yeah. you know, your, your attention is completely on him and what he's about to say. But And then what he says is so unlike anything we've ever heard mm. from a general. And apparently, according to Coppola, these are all just, this like five or six patent speeches. Yes. And almost every line of this, this is not a thing that he said as a whole, but almost every line that is in there are things that he said. I want you to remember that no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it. By making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. The, the speech serves as a foreshadowing for what's going to happen in the rest of the movie. And so so I get George C. Scott's hesitation about the speech being at the beginning of the movie. Like, oh, nothing else is going to live up to it. But the whole point of the speech is to lay groundwork for what you're about to watch throughout the entire movie, Patton's journey. Well, and he's also framing things for the soldiers in such a way he's, he's modeling a certain a view of of life. Yeah. Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. How much resonance does that have, Steve? Real Americans. We keep hearing it all the time nowadays in the political spectrum over the last few years. This idea of what's a real American. You know, real Americans do this. Real Americans or real patriots and all of that crap. You know, so you hear him using it here. It takes a whole nother uh, level on nowadays. Well, and he's so framing a classically male um, yes. uh, testosterone-filled version of what success is. You all admired the champion marble shooter, the fastest runner, big league ball players, the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Do you remember, because it came up in our Civil War documentary, yeah. what, um, uh, what's his name? The great interview. Um, Shelby Foote. Yeah. Do you remember what Shelby Foote said about this line in this movie? No, no, no. Can you remind me? He said that's very ironic coming from a guy whose grandfather fought on, for, the, for the Confederacy. <laughs> His ancestors did lose a war. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but they weren't Americans because they were treasonous towards America. So maybe the, technically he's correct. The, the other thing about it is that we're in the midst of Vietnam. Yes. See, this is what I mean. It's an anti-war film. It's a protest film. Him talking about Americans never losing a war in the middle of Vietnam as we're losing that war. It's really interesting. Some of the lines are so brutal and vile and intense and proud and strange. Like, by God, I actually pity those poor bastards we're going up against. By God, I do. We're not just going to shoot the bastards. We're going to cut out their living guts and use them to grease the treads of our tanks. 
We're going to murder those lousy Hun bastards by the bushel. I mean, that is just like, hey, man, you got to get psyched up for war, Steve. (laughs) Apparently. We are advancing constantly and we're not interested in holding on to anything except the enemy. We're going to hold on to him by the nose and we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time and we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. And then again, framing what, because this is what he, this is his worldview. I want to be in the middle of the battle. That's his whole life goal. Everything is made meaningful by him being in the battle, right? Even that section of the speech where he says, Some of you boys, I know, are wondering whether or not you'll chicken out under fire. Don't worry about it. I can assure you that you will all do your duty. The Nazis are the enemy. Wade into them. Spill their blood. Shoot them in the belly. When you put your hand into a bunch of goo that a moment before was your best friend's face, you'll know what to do. And it's that that little thing of he's building the confidence into the soldiers, but he's not lying to them about the experiences they're going to go through. And that particular moment connects to when he slaps the kid in oh, yeah. the uh, in the tent, right? This idea that he he's heard other people say they're not sure how they're going to react under fire, and he's trying to say, no, you guys will be fine. So to have a soldier who isn't fine under his command is why he reacts in this manner. You know, and so it's all there throughout the speech. Uh, what's to come? And the last thing he says is, or not the last thing he says. And uh, as he's finishing up, he says, 30 years from now, when you're sitting around your fireside and your grandson on your knee, and he asks you, "What did you do in the Great World War II?" You won't have to say, "Well, I shoveled shit in Louisiana." Which is what? Where's the shades of this speech? Once again. This idea of Henry V, right? Henry V says that, right? Uh, uh, yearly on the vigil, uh, whenever uh, St. Crispin's Day happens, those of you who fought will strip your uh, 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 shirts and show the scars uh, that you earned fighting upon St. Crispin's Day. I'm paraphrasing what right. he says there, but basically saying you'll be the biggest man in the room on that day or you'll have the greatest respect from everybody around you because you fought, right? And same thing here. Instead of shoveling shit in Louisiana, you fought in the war and you'll have pride for that. It's so funny because I'm sure when I was 12 or 13, and really probably as a young man watching this, Mm. a big, huge part of me was just going, yeah. Yeah, of course. You know, and looking at it now, I I have such a different view because this is like, what does it mean to be a man? And this is the traditional, like, you're going to be a warrior. You're going to be a fighter. You're going to be the best. You're going to be competitive. You're going to be tough. You're not going to show pain. You're not going to show fear. All those things. And and I'll tell you, I, th- I think I said this a long time ago on the uh, on the show, but <clears throat> in working with Hoover uh, with people who are from Afghanistan, because he was embedded embedded with the Mujahideen during the war against the Soviets, yeah. and one of the problems the CIA had training these fighters is that they walked into battle standing up. Mm. They wouldn't duck. They wouldn't hide. They wouldn't go for cover. They wouldn't hide behind. They, they was like, and the reason is. They had to show that they were a man. They, showing any kind of fear, hiding yeah. would be unhonorable. And the, and the word for this is herat. That is what the honorable wow. way a man is supposed to be. And their definition of herat is doing that which is hardest, that a man does the hard thing. And the thing that I thought about so much is like, well, how hard was it for your dad or for my dad to show weakness? Right, right. So, Very difficult. 
extreme, like my, like couldn't do it. Like my dad would, you know, was literally on his deathbed and wouldn't yeah. complain or say he was afraid or anything. And, and I went, Oh, well, what is hardest? Hmm. Maybe these things that we were saying is what it is to be a man that seem oh. really hard are not hardest. Yep. It, it cost me years of conversations with my dad and arguments and fights for him to finally let the guard down near the tail end of his life and be uh, vulnerable and emotional and sensitive with me because of that, because of the old school feeling machismo of what's a man. And look, that's still within me, Steve, for all the sure. supposedly progressive nature of myself uh, and how I see the world and want to destroy toxic masculinity. I still like the feeling of the overall, the old school bravado of man. I still like, I'm still, gra I still gravitate to it, you know? Um, but I also like to question it when it's fake. There are people who can carry that mantle and it's real. And there are other people who it's all bluster to cover up the fact that they're afraid. And so um, you analyze all of that on a case by case basis. But for, you know, like I said, for my dad, it just, it took a long, long time, a lot of fights before he eventually understood that there's strength in actually talking about your feelings, strength in actually being taken a chance to have, to be ridiculed, to be called a name, uh, to be made fun of for talking yep. about your feelings. That's true strength. Holding on to it is how you blow up or have, uh, you know, get the health issues because you're not, because you're not expressing yourself, you I still struggle with this so much too. And like one of the way it manifests itself for me is I feel like it's my responsibility to, to solve problems, other people's problems, you know? So like my, my wife is in trouble or my son or my wife's family, or I feel like I, well, no one's dealing with this thing. I need to be the one to stand in front of the, the moving train yeah. and try to save people. And I do it to the not only to the detriment of those people, because I actually am taking agency away from them. Yes. But, but I'm doing it to the detriment of myself and my yes. health and my peace of mind and all these things, because I feel these responsibilities that no one, no one said you had to do that. Right. Like that's not your responsibility to you. That is what's hardest. That's so what's hardest. You, yeah. So you, uh, you know, you attach your man, a feeling of manhood to that. Yeah. yeah I would rather do like do really, really hard work then let something bad, let other people just live their lives as they're living them. You know, <laughs> that's how crazy I am. Um, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, and we spent a lot of time just on this one speech, but as you say, it's one of the most amazing openings to a movie. And I think the whole movie is here. Yeah. It's all the mix of, wow, this is an amazing person and I'm not comfortable with this and mm -hmm. what, it, you know, this is what we should do. This isn't what we should do. Maybe this whole thing is, I mean, it's like very complicated. And I'll say just one more thing about it. So after the film comes out, yeah, Coppola is in the midst of making The Godfather. And right. they're in pre-production and the opening scene of The Godfather is at this wedding. One of, I don't know who it was, one of his associates comes up to him and he goes, you know what? It's kind of weird. I mean, we're establishing all this information at this wedding, but it's not all that dramatic. Man, if only you could do something like you did in uh, Patton, where you had just that really intense speech as an opening. And that is where the opening of The Godfather comes from, is uh, that is where we start with that close up. The guy says America yeah. and he has this. Whole, it is it is totally wow. Coppola <laughs> trying to patent The Godfather. He stole from himself. Isn't that How awesome? Brilliant. That's great. Uh, the monologue ends. He, he says dismissed. He walks away. We go to black. And then we hear what is one of my all-time favorite movie themes, mm. bar none. 
I love the I love the Trump fading off into the distance. It's so and, and all by the way, it's just two notes, and then they they echoed them. Um, and this, of course, is Jerry Goldsmith. This, this, so we've we've done a lot of Jerry Goldsmith. I know we did um, Hoosiers. We just did what was the one we just? There was one we just did. I can't remember what it is. Okay. We've done so many Jerry Goldsmith movies, and they're all falling out of my brain right now. <laughs> um, oh, and Planet of the Apes, of course. That's another one of my favorites. Right. Um, and but this is my favorite score of his. Okay. Yeah. And he was almost not on the movie. Oh wow! Because. He was scheduled to do Planet of the Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh God, why? Yeah, <laughs> and Zanuck said, "You're not doing that. <laughs> You're doing this. <laughs> oh no, you don't." <laughs> and with this music is eerie and mystical, and it has that. I think this music has Patton's belief in reincarnation in history mm. right in that. Yeah. And we open, as you as you alluded to when we started, on this very disturbing images, vultures, uh, people robbing graves, a dog that's tied up to a tank, a lot of wounded Americans that are just dead at the end of this old battlefield. Um, and it is very much not an old school war movie. Yeah. These are the things you would never see. No. Right. Exactly. And up comes a Jeep and... The, the camera work is so like, you know, you think about Lawrence of Arabia, another big, huge war film. And if you compare the camera work of Lawrence of Arabia to that of Patton, you see 62 to 69 what's happened. And a soldier stands up and shoots one of the vultures. And we see Carl Malden for the first time as Omar Bradley. And we hear a rundown of everything we've lost, culminating with 1800 men. And, and we see the last thing we see is this dog tied to a tank. Nobody's going to save that dog. That dog's dead. Hard cut to Morocco. And Patton receiving this medal and there's all this pageantry. And it's just completely ridiculous. And Patton says as these troops go by marching, Magnificent. I wish our troops looked that good. Does he mean that? Uh, I don't know. Um, because he's not a political guy, so maybe he's trying to mean that, or, you know, maybe he does mean it. I don't know. I think what's interesting about him is he has certain diplomatic skills that come out in this scene. It comes out when he throws the dinner party, like he, he, cause he has a certain upbringing and elegance to him. Yeah. But yeah, he cannot keep his damn mouth shut at other times. Tell me, General, what do you think of Morocco? I love it, Excellency. It's a combination of the Bible and Hollywood. <laughs> There's not enough things we can say about George C. Scott in his performance. Oh, man. Just incredible. Like, you know, because whenever I read about Patton now, it's George C. Scott's face oh, yeah. I see. It's such a great personification of the man. And you feel the brusqueness and at times the emptiness of. Patton through George C. Scott. He is a man who is tortured by his own behavior, tortured by his inability to stop him, his self-destructive impulses uh, in these. He could have achieved greatness. Dwight Eisenhower became president. Yep. Patton could have been president, but he had uh, these unfortunate uh, um, uh, pieces of himself where he could not stop himself from expressing his honest opinion about situations rather than being political. Yeah. Um, and it's funny reading this book, 
it's way worse than what's in the movie. Oh, I'm there's, sure. There's so many things where it's like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. What are you doing? And it, it literally is like, you've just done something great and now you do something stupid. Right. Uh, back with Omar Bradley looking at just the totally dispirited uh, army and Omar says, For the American army to take a licking like that the first time it bat against the Germans. <laughs> Up against Rommel, what we need is the best tank man we've got. Somebody tough enough to pull this outfit together. Patton? Possibly. God help us. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great setup. An instant cut to Patton standing up in the truck, siren going, driving through the desert in his outfit with the goggles and the whole thing. Um, and they go into town and they chase out the sheep as they go into town. We notice that there's a two star thing on the truck. Um, there's one shot I never noticed before. There's a guy coming out of a house who's zipping his fly following a woman. Mm -hmm. out. And I'm like, oh, that was a prostitute. Like I'd yeah. never seen it before. The truck stops. Um, some of the guys salute. Patton salutes with his riding crop and goes inside. Lieutenant, where's the duty officer? Uh, I think he said he's caught his shaving. Why isn't he here on duty? Guess he needed to shave. We got a new commanding general due today. And that's when he notices who he's talking to. And I love what, so they jump up and they salute. And I love the guy who gives this sort of sheepish half yeah. smile. Yeah. Like, oh, you got me. Maybe I can connect with you on some human level with someone else. Might have worked. Yeah. Oh, you don't buy this pomp and circumstance, right? It's you and me, dog. And yeah. he was like, no, nah, he's the wrong dog. He's <laughs> the wrong dog, definitely. <laughs> and then we see Patton turn a corner and he, we hear, who the hell is kicking me in the butt? And we go in and we see that Patton has literally tripped over someone. What were you doing down there, soldier? Trying to get some sleep, sir. Mm. Get back down there, son. You're the only son of a bitch in this headquarters knows what he's trying to do. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And now we see that Omar's there, and we go through a little beat where um, we hear that, really, Omar was there to just spy on Patton for Ike, and Patton calls up Ike and says, hey, can I have Omar as my second? Yep, you're my second. <laughs> done and done. It's also a classic uh, film trope, right? To use it, the, the the tough guy coming in to sh shake all these guys out and teach them how discipline, blah blah blah. You know, you see, and same thing in Hoosiers, right? I mean, a, a Hackman coming in as a kind of a hard ass, teach these guys a little bit of discipline. You know, that one guy, buddy, smiles at him and go, tries to, and leaves with the, the other guy who ends up coming back to the team. But yeah, buddy's like smiling. And, you know, oh, you're supposed to know when practice starts. Get out. You know, so it's that kind of thing. So it's a classic trope in that way. What, what I think is interesting in this one, though, is that there is no question that this army needs discipline. Yes. That Omar agrees with that. They need that. The question is, do they need what Patton does? <clears throat> and reading the book, Omar totally disagreed with many of the things that he did because they were unnecessarily cruel. Mm -hmm. Like Omar was a great troop trainer um, as well, but just didn't think you had to be an asshole. Um, and, uh, and of course, the thing that George is doing is he's got some guys taking those two stars off his uniform and replacing them with three. What's the matter, Brad? I've been nominated by the president. I know, but uh, it doesn't become official until it's approved by the Senate. Well, they have their schedule and I have mine. And they look out the window and there's, they're replacing the, the two stars on the truck with three stars. And Omar softens pretty quickly. He says, George, if you were named Admiral of the Turkish Navy, I believe your aides could dip into their haversacks and come up with the appropriate badge of rank. Anyway, congratulations. Premature congratulations. 
Here's the thing about Omar Bradley and Patton. Obviously, their, their relationship is going to evolve over time. Yeah. Patton always liked Omar, and he thought it was reciprocal. And Omar, there are times that he liked him, right. and there are definitely times he appreciated him, but the feelings were not mutual. Yeah. He just knew how to keep his feelings to himself. Which is why Omar becomes successful. Politics, yeah. again, he's being political. There's one other thing I put in my Casserine report. Some of our boys were just plain scared. That's understandable. Even the best foxhounds are gun shy the first time out. I can remember nothing frightened me as much as the idea of a bullet coming straight from my nose. I don't know why, but the, the image of a bullet coming right from my nose was more horrible than any other possibility. Well, I can understand that, George, with such a handsome nose. <laughs> Let's be real clear. Neither of these guys have nice noses. <laughs> True. You want to know why this outfit got the hell kicked out of it? Blind man could see it in a minute. They don't look like soldiers. They don't act like soldiers. Why should they be expected to fight like soldiers? You're absolutely right. The discipline's pretty poor. About 15 minutes, we're going to start turning these boys into fanatics, razors. They'll lose their fear of the Germans. Only hope to God they never lose their fear of me. Oof. Yeah. We go to the mess, and again, the cook comes out, who's had, you know, you can see his relationship with the previous general, you know, <laughs> that he brought him the special, you know, marmalade or something that he yeah. had, you know what I mean? Like he had a special relationship, and he comes out smiling. This is not that guy. You might understand that all my officers have finished breakfast? Well, we're open from six to eight. Uh, most of the officers just coming in, sir. Please inform these officers that the mess hall is closed. But, but sir, it's only a quarter to eight. No, I knew it will open at 6, and no one will be admitted after 6.15. Where are your leggings? Leggings? Well, well, hell, General, sir, I'm a cook. You're a soldier. $20 fine. From this moment on, any man without a helmet, leggings, tie, unshined shoes, soiled universe is go uniform is going to be skinned. Yeah. The tie is one of the ones that Omar Bradley thought was ridiculous. <laughs> Like we're in a we're in a war zone. Like we don't need to wear a tie. That's not it's not part of the standard uniform for that situation. Well, Omar, you don't understand. <laughs> a tie makes a man feel important. So what he's doing is important. So he'll give his best effort. That's the logic behind that. Did you serve under a crazy dis any crazy disciplinarian like that? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Yeah, of course. I mean. Um, we had a, a, two guys, um, who I served under, uh, who are hard asses like crazy. Um, they were best friends. So, um, I guess because certain factions would go up and serve, uh, and, uh, one was called, uh, his nickname was Robo Drill because he never stopped and he was like a machine and it was insane and he demanded the best of you, but. They're like the best in the military. He made you, he made you, he pushed you past your comfort zones, but never to the point where he wouldn't be understanding. You know, I remember he tricked me one time as Joel Sergeant Thompson. That's his name, Sergeant Thompson. Um, I came up to him uh, after I'd finished basic training. I'd gone on to my AIT and I went up to him and I said, listen, uh, they put me in charge of a squad in basic training and I don't like that responsibility. I just want to keep my head, my mouth closed. I want to keep my head down and just do 
the job and and learn my training and get move on to my next post. And he said, don't worry, private, don't worry. I remember this was late at night after the first or second night we were there. Don't worry, private, don't worry, private. Next morning, he demotes the squad leader and assigns me uh, squad leader status of the entire. And I was just shocked. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, did you, Joseph, did you misunderstand what I said? I didn't say to put me. I said, he goes, oh, no, I understood you, private. And that's why you're taking the position that you're taking. Because you can't get through this man's army picking and choosing what you can be. I can see what you can be, even if you can't. And then he just walked away. And I just remember, like, that was such a, a shock to me. And from that point on, he was hard on me about being so I could be hard on the other guys. You know, it was a weird thing. So it was like certain experiences you have in the military, you just carry on with you. Uh, and they know which ones they can push. The good ones do. And they know which ones they can't. You know, and he was hard. But the reason he was hard is because he wanted to build pride within yourself about the things you were doing. You know, and so. So what do you feel that. about that? What do you feel about that now? Are you glad? Not a negative feeling at all. Not a negative feeling at all. Because I think sometimes sometimes people who are a little soft, and I mean soft mentally, don't understand that. I don't mean mentally, like mental health. I mean soft mentally, and they don't push themselves. They don't understand that. Like that you have to be pushed sometimes as a human being to accomplish what you can accomplish. Uh, And if you don't want to be pushed, then stop talking about your dreams. Stop talking about the things you want to accomplish in this world. Because if you're not going to make an effort to make those dreams happen, even a little bit of effort, then 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 you should stop talking about it. Because people will invest in your dreams and will want you to give your best effort to achieve that, you know? And listen. I'm not the easiest person to get along with sometimes in terms of uh, relationships. And that has bit me in the ass sometimes in relationships with other people. And so those are the things that I carry on my, I carry on my own. And I'm very hard on myself as a result, you know, for better or worse, because I expect, uh, I expect to do well in everything I commit myself to. And that's built out of that. But I have no negative feelings about that because he wasn't abusive, right? I don't think Patton's abusive. I think Patton has a strategy. He has a morality. He has things that work. Like in that near the end of the movie, he was talking about moving his soldiers under a certain time. And they said, do you think your soldiers will do it? No, they don't do it because they love me. They do it because I've trained them to do it. And there's a difference, right? So sometimes people rule by making everybody hate you because then you all come together against Patton. But you're still coming together to be disciplined and you'll get the job done because you hate me. You'll get the job done. You know, some guys are built that way. Bradley wasn't. Bradley was a little bit softer. And so his way is a little more touchy feely in comparison. And I and that works, too, for certain people that works. Patton's way was different, but for better or worse, it was just different. So I think you kind of hit on what is one of the key themes of the whole film and mm. something I think we'll discuss throughout, yeah. which is. Because what's interesting is there's a difference. You, you, there's a difference between the leader pushing the follower and how that manifests itself, and you yeah. pushing yourself. Right. You know, and so I think Patton pushes himself the way he pushes other people. Yes. But uh, w- what's interesting to me, like today, particularly in California, in this very progressive world, and I think about the school that my son goes to, Patton is out. <laughs> oh yeah, you can't put that stuff now. You can't it, pull today that stuff. it is very much like because 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 we have 
we can use positive and negative reinforcement to train people to do things. So we do carrots and sticks and Patton is basically all stick. Yeah, it's all you stick. Know? Yes. And, and my, <laughs> my son's school is only carrot oh, to wow. the point where they have discipline problems because, you know, there's, they, they always go, well, obviously if the child is acting out, they must need some more love, you know? Mm. And it's like, look, the, that, that tactic, works sometimes it doesn't work for everybody and like and the thing is is like i think you at that moment with that drill sergeant you needed to be pushed right and he saw that he said this person is not going to live up to their potential Mm -hmm. unless i push them i am sure there are other times in your lives because i've had this i've had both experiences where i needed to be helped yes you know yeah and so and so what's interesting about this is Patton is one note you know, yeah. and because I think about because because there's as I say there's a difference between like your individual achievement and leadership, and because I teach directing and have been a director, I think a lot about leadership, and what does it mean and how do we go about doing it? And in film, we've had a lot of patents as yes. directors, yes, and we've had some Omar Bradleys, you know, like we've had. And by the way, he was not soft; he was efficient. He just didn't have a temper. Got I, mean, I shouldn't even say so that. Just a he, difference. Yeah. He had a temper, but he wasn't. It wasn't Patton. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why there's no movies about it. Uh, but also, uh, the thing is, there's no general rule. Is there, Steve? Like, mm. I'm, you're discovering that as a dad yourself, I'm sure. Like, every kid is different. And yes, there are some things that will work with a g- certain group of kids and some things that will work with another group of kids. And, you know, we the, in sports, the best managers are the ones that know how to manage each individual player on their team in a certain way they understand they're not system coaches they're co- they're man player or their player coaches they understand how to motivate their team so some people know how to do that and some people don't the best do with what my problem with Patton was and this is ironic in the movie because it doesn't get really touched on the the and, and and maybe throughout the book as you read it the problem with Patton is that he doesn't even a hundred percent believe in what he's doing because every time people push back, then he's like, oh, no, no, I'll, I'll do it with less divisions. I'll do it. So his way of of stating his energy or his presence or whatever is to say, no, this is what I need. And screw you if you don't give it to me. And then they don't give it to him and he can't live with the consequences. And he backtracks. And the backtracking is where you lose the real strength and foundation of the belief of what you're doing. And that frustrated me as I was watching the movie. Every time he was he was made to to grovel instead of to accept the consequences because his real desire, which was to fight, to be a warrior is what drove his life, you know? And there's that great scene at the end where the, the German guy says, you know, I don't know what this guy's going to do without a war to fight. What's Patton going to do without a war to fight? Cause that's all he's ever known. You know? Well, and I think with Patton, it's all about ego. It's all yes, about him. Of course. You know, and that's the, that's the big fallacy is that mm-hmm. if your motivation was pure, he, we can't know, that his motivation is pure or that he's doing the right thing because his motivations aren't pure. Right. And sometimes serving his ego is successful. Yeah. Sometimes it's not. Uh, he shows up at the hospital. I understand you have two cases of uh, self-inflicted wounds. Yes, sir, we do. Uh, get him out of here. Well, sir, one of them has developed a very serious infection. Well, I don't care if he dies. Just get him someplace but out of here. He doesn't belong in the same building with men who have been wounded in battle. And the looks that go between the doctors is so clear, and then he says, There'll be no battle fatigue in my command. That's an order. Yes, sir. Battle fatigue is a free ride. Yellow Belly's ticket to the hospital. I'm not going to subsidize cowardice. And then he even pushes the doctor, like, you got to wear a helmet. 
It's like, well, I can't put my I can't put my stethoscope on with a helmet. Well, cut some holes in your helmet then. Interesting, right? Interesting. Yeah. Well, and this is the unreasonable leader. It's like, mm-hmm. like Patton is going to get what he wants to a, literally to a fault. But you know, some people watch these sequences and they love it. Mm-hmm. Other people watch these sequences, and I wonder in nineteen what nineteen seventy when this came out, what's the reaction of other people? Because him saying the yellow bellied or all of. I mean, we're knee deep in Vietnam. How many people were sending uh, letters back home going, I got afraid or I got scared or the sound? And these are 17, 18 year old kids, 19 year old kids being thrown into Southeast Asia in a jungle to fight some foreign enemy that they that they can barely see. Um, and they're and what? How are they going to react to it? You know, the protests. That's essentially a shot. Of the protest, the yellow-bellied people. Blah blah blah. He's taking a shot at the protesters a little bit in that uh, as well. So it's a very interesting thing. Am I supposed to like Patton or not? And throughout the movie, I think by the end of the movie, only you can make that decision. Well, I think this movie is like a perfect wedge at the generation gap. Yes, and a perfect wedge at the political gap because if you are a hippie in 1970 and going to Vietnam War protests, you're going, see, that's the problem. Right. It's a military mentality that all, you know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. They just only know how to kick ass and they don't, they're not caring and they're creating more violence. But if you are, there are many people during the Vietnam War who felt the problem with Vietnam was you didn't let the u.s army off its leash Mm -hmm. like let it go be the real killers they need to be in order to win the damn war they're they're being too timid and so they would look at this and go yeah this is what we need where is george s Patton? we need to send him to vietnam right and finally win this war the reason we're losing is we're not doing it for real and the people are protesting and that's uh, uh, affecting the morale of the yeah. soldiers you Slap, yellow get bellies, them the hell out of here right you yellow bellies who won't fight because you're sitting there protesting in the street or fleeing to canada you're you're affecting the morale of the soldiers so some people felt that way yeah hold it turn right here sir the battlefield is straight ahead please don't argue with me sergeant i can smell a battlefield he was out here just yesterday george it's over there turn right damn it and they turn right and they get to these ruins, and there is that mysterious music. It was here. The battlefield was here. The Carthaginians defending the city were attacked by three Roman legions. The Carthaginians were proud and brave, but they couldn't hold. They were massacred. And he kneels down. Arab women stripped them of their tunics and their swords and lances. The soldiers lay naked in the sun. It is a weird scene. <laughs> and it's the first time you go like, who is this guy? 2,000 years ago, I was here. And Patton really had these beliefs. Yeah. This is the other scene that Coppola believes that he was fired from the script for. Oh, wow. Because it's really weird, you know? And he reads his own poetry. <laughs> That's weird. It, I don't think... Uh, some people do believe that they are... Of past lives. And Shirley MacLaine sure. certainly felt that way. Patton, but, Shirley MacLaine, same, same. Yeah. <laughs> Shirley was a hard ass herself. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff, some some of the great people really do believe that they are, they were uh, something great. Because they ne- nobody ever goes, oh, yeah, I was a homeless guy in a past life, or I was a, I it's always something great, right? So it's, I was there. <laughs> I love that's a that's such a great point. It's like, well, somebody had to be the homeless guy in the past right, life. Right? I died of a bubonic plague in a past life. And a, I was wait, a poor, I was a poor schlub that did nothing important at all. 
wasn't I? Yeah, exactly. It appears now, excuse me, that we could split the Africa core, drive through Rumble to the sea. I'm sorry, Bill, but that territory's been reserved for General Sir Bernard Law Montgomery. Who's been the most successful British officer pushing Rommel back across Africa. They're entitled to have their hero, after all. Montgomery did push Rommel clear across North Africa. What about the Americans? Don't they need a hero, too? Do you have anybody in mind, George? <laughs> I love it. George Patton is so obvious. Oh, yeah. Um and now we have a meeting with uh, the British officer, and the meeting is about air power. We're supposed to have Allied air cover, and we don't get it. German planes are constantly strafing my troops. If I may say so, General, I'm afraid your operations reports are inaccurate. Reports? Three days ago, the crowds took off after my command car, ran my ass into a ditch. <laughs> <laughs> and I promise you one thing, General. You will see no more German planes. Cut to... German planes <laughs> um, that just come in on multiple strafing runs. We all duck down. The room's getting shot to pieces. Patton jumps out the window, yeah. climbs down. I love it. Come on, you bastards! Take a shot at me right in the nose! Get back in here, George. We need a corps commander, not a casualty. <laughs> Why does he say right in the nose? Well, wasn't him and Bradley talking about the nose thing earlier? So maybe there's a connection there. I, it's what, totally what I think it is. And I think because his big fear, the nightmare he had was getting shot in the nose. I think this is him facing his fear specifically. Yeah. yeah. This really happened. <laughs> he really was in the me meeting demanding more air power. And the British officer was really saying that we have total air supremacy <laughs> when a German attack happened. That's great. He did not jump out the window. And <laughs> of the course fire. Not. That did not happen. How the devil did man just stage that? And Patton really did say, I don't know, but if I could find the Nazi some bitches that are flying those things, I'd give them each a medal. <laughs> we're at a cemetery. Again, we're hearing that mysterious theme. And Patton and his aide, Dick, are walking over the hill in the distance. Rommel's out there somewhere waiting for me. If I had my way, I'd send that genius son of a bitch. An engraved invitation and iambic pentameter. A challenge in two standards to meet me out there alone in the desert. Rommel and his tank and me and mine. We'd stop about 20 paces, we'd get out, we'd shake hands. And we'd button up and we'd do battle, just the two of us. And that battle would decide the outcome of the war. Do you think he means it? I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he meant it. The I battle, think so too. Yeah, just the... Uh... You know, mano a mano. Yeah, it's old school romantic. Tough stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the last thing he says is, "Put a twenty-four hour guard on the cemetery. Our graves aren't going to disappear like everyone else's who fought here. The Greeks, the Romans, the Carthaginians. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot about the Greeks and Romans and Carthaginians in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's what I think is so interesting. This is the third time we've kind of hit this." We opened with the, after the monologue, we opened with this scene of what was happening. Yeah. The bodies were being robbed. And then when he goes to the battlefield, he says, after the war, the Arabs stripped the bodies. Yeah. And now this is the third time. And he says, we're not going to let that happen. Yeah. I think that's really important. <clears throat> and the last thing he says is, God, how I hate the 20th century. <laughs> yep. We're in Germany. And now we meet Steiger, the researcher hired to do research on Patton. And he's telling Rommel about 
the information he has that he's rich, rich father went to West, you know, went to West Point, et cetera. And he says, you're not telling me anything about the man. I need to know, know something about him. And he says, he prays on his knees, curses like a stable boy and always takes the offensive. Hmm. I think the casting of Rommel is great. Oh yeah. There's something about him that is so interesting for how little time he's on screen. Yeah. He's unknowable. Like he's, yeah. You can tell he's a very proud man, but he's a man who's intelligent, smart, doesn't look past his foe, isn't swaggering or cocky, um, but also um, legitimately uh, interested in who he's fighting and uh, knowledgeable about what he's doing. So it allows you to create in your own mind what kind of person Rommel is overall. Patton is in bed. He's been reading Rommel's book on tanks when someone comes in and says Rommel is attacking we see tanks moving and now Patton is getting dressed and he, he is being dressed almost like royalty. Mm. Like Patton's comfort with servants doing things for him is it's really odd to me, but it seems so natural for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because he thinks he's great. So therefore he should be fed it upon. And there's his helmet that has like the goggles on the helmet and a guy stands behind him and puts it on him like a crown. Yeah. <laughs> it's really it's weird purpose. scene. I would legitimately hate that. I would oh, me too. Yeah. All my life, I've wanted to lead a lot of men in a desperate battle. I'm going to do it. It's about him. It's all about him. It's all about him. Well, and this is why he's not trustworthy. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is because we can't know if he's doing this because this is the right military choice or because this is what he wants for him. Yeah. You know, uh, we're in the battle. He's looking through binoculars. Commence firing. Fire at will. Commence firing. Fire at will. Commence firing. Fire at will. This is a big battle. This is more tanks than I'd ever seen in a battle up to this yeah, point. Yeah. Lots of tanks, lots of explosions, lots of troops. Um, by the way, this battle was way bigger than what we're seeing. This was mm. a huge, huge tank battle. Tell him, tell him to hit him hard on the right flank. Here's where we hold my nose. Kick him in the ass. Go on. His leadership style in this moment, I love mm -hmm. the confidence, the intensity, the he's more friendly because he's happier. Yeah. He's doing what he wants to do, which is be in battle. So you're going to get the best personality of Patton you can get, especially mm -hmm. if he thinks he's going to win. And so this is Dick, his aide that goes off to find Omar, gets out of the Jeep, and then a strafing run comes in and Dick gets killed. And Omar sees it. Yeah. Um, the battle, I would say, is not clear. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know who's going where or exactly yeah. what's happening. Right. And Patton lowers his binoculars and he smiles and says, you magnificent bastard. <laughs> I read your book. <laughs> I love that. I read your book. I love that. George C. Scott's delivery is so totally unique the way this guy talks. Mm -hmm. um, and then we cut to silence and Dick's corpse covered in a flag in a cart. And we hear... Captain Richard N. Jensen was a fine boy, loyal, unselfish, and efficient. And he touches his face. There are no coffins here since there's no wood. We will have a trumpeter and an honor guard, but we will not fire the volleys as it would make people think an air raid was on. I don't know why, but I love that description. So it's so, I don't it's hard to explain why I think that's such good writing. Is it such a interesting description and it summons up this moment emotionally in some way that I can't be really quite explain. Mm. 
I enclosed a lock of Dick's hair in a letter to his mother. He was a fine man and a fine officer. And he had no vices. It's almost a jealousy. There's yeah. almost an yeah. envy. Not jealousy, but an envy, right? Like, oh, you know, there's a great... We just did Shards of Fire, right? Yeah. What does uh, uh, Abram said? Those of, you know, those of us who are driven by something to achieve uh, something we envy those who are not we envy those who it's okay to just get close and it's okay that i was just in the game you know that us like when abram says to uh aubrey he says you are my most complete man you want Mm. for nothing you need nothing i've never known that i've never known that contentment that peace and and Patton is saying the same thing here about his aid like he's no vices he's great he was uh, you know stayed in uh, he did everything he was supposed to do you know and there's an envy he's not he wasn't driven to achieve like i am and deal with all the bullshit that's part of it you know so and the last thing we hear his voiceover say is i can't see the reason such fine young men get killed there are so many battles yet to fight that's a weird twist on a line man yeah because 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 he's not because he's saying He's not saying, I wish they could be alive. Right. He's saying, we need them to fight more. (laughs) You know? Um, By the way, Patton did keep a journal. And apparently it is a lot. (laughs) Emotional, (laughs) angry, jealous, vicious, nasty, you know, sad, depressed. (laughs) This guy had a lot of personality. The the dude needed to see a therapist very, very badly. (laughs) Like you said, the douche. (laughs) Oh, Did sorry, the dude. The, I meant to the dude. The dude. The dude. I meant to say. <laughs> uh, the dude is a totally different movie. <laughs> he too needs to see a therapist. But all right, yeah, let's move on. Um, we're back with the Germans, um, uh, and the big question is: Is Patton going to attack Sardinia? We're asking Steiger this, and he goes, "No." And he says, "Why?" Well, because Patton is a historian, and he knows that Sicily has always been the key. He will attack as the Athenians did, and the general he's talking to is like, "What are you talking about?" This is the 20th century. And Steiger <laughs> says, Patton is a 16th century man. Uh, excuse me, General. Hmm? So this is interesting. We've discovered Rommel wasn't present at El Guitar. Are they telling me that when we took on 10th Panzer, Rommel was in Berlin with an earache? And they say, well, yeah, well, he's Hitler's favorite general, and he didn't want him to lose face. I'm my favorite general, and I don't like to be told if some second stringer is up against me. Then I lose face. And now we meet a new character. This is Conklin. But General... He undoubtedly planned the German battle. If you defeat Rommel's plan, you've defeated Rommel. That's some first-class ass-kissing. Kiss- that is the right, right? <laughs> it's like... <sighs> and Patton, I want to drink with you. Yeah. <laughs> he eats it up. He's like, yeah, of oh. course. Of course. What's so funny, one of the reasons uh, Patton got fired by MacArthur, and he was really happy because he didn't like MacArthur, and MacArthur, according to Patton, only surrounded himself with sycophants. Mm, interesting. <laughs> it's like, that's the we, reason. Yeah. What do we see right here? <laughs> I mean, Mark Carthur was a prima donna, but which one was more of a prima donna is a damn good question. Well, look, Patton says it later. Uh, I know I'm a prima donna. Uh, the problem with Rom, the problem with Montgomery is he won't admit he's a prima donna. <laughs> I love both of you and I just like can't help but speak. <laughs> They're great lines. They're they delivered are. so well by George C. Scott. Um, and then Patton says to this guy who's going to be his new aide that he needs to have a fancy dinner because he wants to get his Sicily plan. This will be strictly a formal affair, Codman, but uh, purely social. By that I mean uh, purely political. 
And he says, it's going to be a strictly formal affair, purely social. And by that, I mean, purely political. And he says something in French and the guy comes right back in French and they talk away in French. I want the finest food, the best wine available, everything. Comme il faut. Entendu, mon général. <laughs> Quelque chose de vraiment spécial. Because Patton, as a, even though he's this foul-mouthed, gruff guy, is actually very elegant. And we cut to a very elegant dinner where wine is being poured and everyone is enjoying it. And Patton speaks some erudition about Alcibiades and the Peloponnesian, all about Sicily. And suddenly he's got a map out of Lane's plan. It looks like an interesting plan, John. Well, gentlemen, uh, to the conquest of uh, Sicily. To Sicily. And they say, oh, that's a very interesting plan. And he says a toast to the conquest of Sicily. And the last thing they say is, you'd have made a great marshal for Napoleon if, you've lived, if you'd lived in the 18th century. But I did, Sir Harold. I did. <laughs> and now we really, we had kind of seen Montgomery in a newsreel before, but now we really get to meet him. He drives up uh, to the, some headquarters in Algeria, I think it is, asks where Beetle Smith is. Beetle Smith was Ike's right-hand man. Oh. Apparently, Beetle Smith, by the way, was a major ass-kicker. Like when people were disobeying or not doing something right or not living up to Ike's expectations, he sent Beetle after them. And Beetle was scary. Ike's his right hand, or Beetle's his right hand man. Exactly. Uh, But that's not how Beetle's uh, portrayed here. And right now, Beetle is in the lavatory. (laughs) Monty comes in. I love that he checks under the stalls. (laughs) And he says, I think Patton's plan is going to be a disaster. And Beetle's like, okay. (laughs) And then there's this great close up of Monty going, oh. (laughs) <laughs> and he blows onto a mirror and draws a map of Sicily and says, here's Patton's plan. And the problem is we're going to, our forces will be divided and the Germans can cut us up piecemeal. Now then, what I propose, and what I shall insist on, by the way, is this. And I like that he, we saw him in that weird close-up blow on the mirror. Now he goes out of frame and we're watching Beetle as we hear, <sighs> Yeah, And Beatles' expression of like, oh, my God, <laughs> we have to deal with this. And he basically outlines a plan where he's going to have the main advance and Patton is just going to be protecting his flank. Yeah, of course. I love that Beatle is smart enough to wipe the damn mirror down and not leave your map plan up there. Amusing, isn't it? What? That the final plans for the invasion of Sicily should have been put forward in an Algerian lavatory. And we cut to Patton getting the news that his plan has been rejected. In other words, we get the burden again while good old Monty gets the glory, huh? Ike had to consider all points of view. He made his decision not as an American, but as an ally. And this is going to be the conflict between Patton and Ike, in, for real, yeah. for the whole rest of the war. This is what happens when your commander stops being an American and starts being an ally. Which, of course, isn't realistic, is it? Like, Patton is trying to be... America, essentially America, you know, but but there's other considerations to take here. And once again, he doesn't see the bigger picture. He doesn't stand that he has to kind of sacrifice a little bit of his ego for the overall good. Because, you know, if he does this, then down the road, it'll be Montgomery who covers his flank while he does what he needs to do through the main thing. But Patton only sees self-glory here, you know. You know what's and he's cra- right. To, he's right to point out that Monty is all about himself. Absolutely. Sure. You, you know what's crazy? So we brought up Hoosiers because Jerry Goldsmith did the score, right? And you brought up Hoosiers again because we were talking about the new coach coming in to mm. discipline the troops. Here's another place that Hoosier is, is important: is that the way those teams played before Gene Hackman showed up yeah. is it was all about individual glory, mm-hmm. which is what Patton's into. Right. Ike Ike wants to win the war. Yeah. 
if you're going to play on the team and you play a role in the team and you don't get any glory, but your team wins, you should be happy. Yeah. Yeah. Patton wants the Americans to get credit and he wants himself to get credit. Right. More than anything else. Yeah. That's his, that's his motivating factor. Yeah. We have some newsreel footage of Patton multiple times getting off a troop transport, walking through the water. Here's an interesting thing about this. Uh, Daryl Zanuck, one of the most important studio heads who later becomes, you know, the producer of this picture during World War II is there was that five who came back documentary. He was one of the guys, the Hollywood guys who went to shoot newsreel and documentary footage in World War II. Mm. He filmed Patton in the Sicily campaign in World War II. So uh, his guys are basically the guys that shot this stuff. I mean, in in the real world, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And we're with the Germans and they're talking about that Patton and Montgomery are prima donnas. And then we see Bradley and they all go, man, he looks just like a common soldier. Um, And I love that Steiger says, he, he's most capable and unpretentious, unusual for a general. <laughs> the general in front of him looks back at him like, huh? Sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I don't think I've made myself clear, sir. It's true Montgomery's met the toughest resistance of the campaign there at Catania. However, if we're reportedly clear... Listen to George C. Scott's voice that he uses in this. Old Monty is as stuck as a bug on flypaper. <laughs> and they go, yeah, but they've given you an order to give this route to Montgomery. And he says, and then old Bradley will have to slug, slug, mind you, his way up the center of the island over those tough mountain roads, won't he? It's such a weird voice he's doing yeah. in this moment. It's so odd. He's and making fun of Mon- he's making fun of Montgomery. His well, he's making accent. fun of Montgomery, but he's also so callous about what Brad oh, is yeah. going to have to do because of this. Right. Messina. They followed my plan. I'd be there by now. I'd cut off the retreat of every goddamn German on this island. And then he outlines his plan. You know what I'm going to do? First, I'm going to go to Palermo. And I'm still going to beat that limey son of a bitch machine. That's the last thing I ever do. And that's when Omar Bradley enters. Hey, what's all this talk about taking the Vizzini Road away from Second Corps? And George C. Scott, who's done nothing but bitch about the orders that he gets, says, hey, yeah. that's Alexander's orders. You got to follow orders. Yeah. Omar Bradley looks over at the map and says, now You wouldn't be taking advantage of this situation, would you, George? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, without that road, your whole army would be out of a job, free for you to go to Palermo if you felt like it. Who said anything about Palermo? I love this moment. I can read a map. What's so great, and I don't think this is like we did um, on the waterfront, yeah. where Carl Malden's performance is stunning. Yeah. I don't think this performance is stunning at all. But you could see the wheels turn mm-hmm. in a very simple, simple performance. George, are you telling me that I've got to slug it out over those mountains with heavy resistance just so you can make a bigger splash than Monty? And I love to because it's so interesting in the American military that they call each other by their first names. Yeah. You know, the, the level of hierarchy is lower in the American military. Yeah. But at this moment, George doesn't say Brad. He says, General I just follow my orders, like the simple old soldier I am. And right at that moment, in comes a message telling him to stop immediately. And he and George says, that's what you think it says. I think it was garbled in transmission. Ask them to retransmit and take your time about it. That'll take half a day. He says it right in front of Omar Bradley. Well, Brad, where were we? We were talking about a simple old soldier. Bradley taking his shots where he can. Yep. We cut to the troops on the road and Patton is on his Jeep and watches troops go by. And this whole sequence is great. 
Mm-hmm. And, and the contrast between Patton on his Jeep just being the king of all this stuff, and he looks out at this huge convoy of vehicles and says, look at that, gentlemen. Compared to war, all other forms of human endeavor shrink to insignificance. Which I think is true. And we contrast that to Bradley under artillery fire. His Jeep gets hit. He jumps out of it. He runs for cover. He loses his helmet. There's explosions all around. He runs for another piece of cover. Another soldier, just an ordinary soldier, shows up next to him and says, What silly son of a bitch is in charge of this operation? I don't know, but they ought to hang him. Is he talking about Patton or himself? Uh, I think he's talking about Patton. I think it I think it could go either way. Yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting moment. But by, by the way, Omar Bradley had terrible, terrible hemorrhoids. Mm. Oh, wow. And in fact, like really bad hemorrhoids. And in fact, he had surgery the day before the Sicily operation started. Oh wow. On his hemorrhoids. And he would refuse to stay. He was supposed to stay in recovery for a couple of days. And he refused and he was in agony through this whole process. Yeah, that's insane. I had a hemorrhoidectomy. It's the worst experience of your life. Uh, every time you go to the bathroom, it feels like uh, broken glass is coming out of your butthole. Uh, so you're supposed <laughs> to sit. It's no, it's no lie. You're supposed to sit in warm water f- three or four times a day for like half an hour to 45 minutes for two weeks. That's the recovery process. So the fact that he was willing to do a battle with yeah. this incredible pain going on, if he had that inside his butt is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. I mean, it, it's funny. Reading this book, Omar Bradley and Ike are the heroes. Like, yeah. you know, like Patton is such a fucking pain in the ass. <laughs> I mean, he does great things sometimes. It's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and Omar and Ike are just battling through. Of just just keep going. Yeah, um, that's from Bradley's point of view. So Yeah. And Patton is having a meeting with some ministers. Colonel Davis told us around your quarters, General Patton, and I was interested to see a Bible by your bed. Do you actually find time to read it? I sure do. Every goddamn day. (laughs) In Germany, we hear that the Allies have taken Palermo. Monty hears that the Allies have taken Palermo and says, Damn! And now we're in Palermo at a parade. And one of the things that's interesting, this is written by Francis Ford Coppola. His connections to Sicily. Great point. This is his ancestors. Yeah, yeah. This this is a ridiculous parade. It didn't happen this way at all. Like, where did they get all the little American flags and like Sicily in the middle of World War say, II? Yeah, it's that crazy. struck me this time too. I was like, they wouldn't be celebrating the Americans coming in to save them. What are you talking about? Well, and like the huge red carpet up to the cardinal on the stairs. It's like, man, they put together quite a do. Yeah, considering we're in the middle of a war, but they did have a small parade, and this is where Omar Bradley really started to turn on Patton. Yeah, and now. Patton's talking to the press. Not a, never a good idea. What's your feeling about Montgomery? And this is where Patton's going to get into trouble. <laughs> He's the best general the English have. But he seems a little more concerned with not losing a battle than he does about winning one. And they go, oh, are you saying he's not aggressive enough? And he says, look, hold on. I've been having trouble lately. My mouth's been getting me in a lot of trouble lately. If I've said anything a little too critical, my distinguished British colleague, let's just uh, forget all about it. Huh? And he knew what was going to happen. Yeah. You think he knew? Oh, of course he knew. Mm. I think he knew what he was trying to do, and he thought it would work out in his favor every time, and it didn't. So Patton had already gotten called by Ike many, many times at this point to shut up. Yeah. It, so he knew. Yeah. You know, he by knew even that, talking to the press, he was courting yeah. the possibility. I will tell you one thing. Off the record, I'm going to beat that gentleman to Messina. <laughs> Not off the record. <laughs> it's on the newspaper. And now... 
Patton's kind of getting hung up. He's slogging, just like Montgomery was. And he has a meeting with Omar and another general, and they say, we're going to have a coordinated amphibious attack on the 11th. And that general says, I don't think we can make it. Hell, it's only 15, 20 miles. General, my boys have been fighting and dying for yards. Patton's response, maybe you better kick a few butts if you have to. Patton's such a dick in this scene. Uh, well, yeah. I'm sorry, but I can't do the impossible. And now Omar steps in, and this is very interesting. He says, George, if Lucian's right and we can't back him up by land, our end run could be a disaster. Now, those men might get caught up there on the beach and cut to pieces. And Patton, who's lying down, looks like he's got a headache or something. The landing is on. We're going to Messina. We're going to get there before Montgomery does. That's it right there. Yep. If you're grandstanding the way he is, and you're calling out an old soldier and you're saying, oh, you're too old to know the blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. It's that it's the reason the game is happening is because you're forcing the game to happen. And it does not have to have to happen at this speed. It does not have to happen. This is all for your individual glory. And the way he speaks to that general is just like the way the Pat would never allow anyone to speak to him in that way. You know, when he wasn't groveling for, uh, you know, asking yeah. for command back. But I, it's such a terrible scene because it shows you the hubris of Patton in those moments. You know, the film does an incredible job of showing you his it's a really well-rounded uh, portrayal of this man. You see his, uh, you know, tender-hearted moments. You see his uh, vulnerability. You see his fear, his depression, his uh, self-hatred. Um, but you also see his um, maniacal uh, drive to be considered the best or to be uh, to to win or to be you know to force people to to say he's a better general than anybody else and it is a uh, it's a dangerous path to walk because in the end it'll leave you with empty accolades and he says it later right at the end of the movie he says like you know the the the, the person walking behind the roman emperor whispering in his ear all glory is fleeting which is the lesson all glory is fleeting Chasing glory without fixing yourself first is a useless endeavor because it will be gone. I think chasing glory, period, is a fairly useless endeavor. And, and of course, there are a lot of people who wouldn't agree with that, who are really into how they appear to the world and to history. And like to me, it's like the gig is win the war. Right. That's it. You know, right, right, I'm because right. I because I like Omar Bradley or Eisenhower. I'm a team player. Right. Like I'm like, well, we want to win. If we can win and I don't get glory, that's better than me getting glory and us losing. Yeah. The way he frames everything, his whole driving force is him. Yes. I mean, he's a he's a narcissist. You know, he yes. like sees the world as he wants it. And he is willing because this is the thing. How we can't know exactly how close a thing this battle was. Mm -hmm. We know that this one general who seems like an experienced guy and Omar Bradley are concerned that if these things don't meet up exactly right time, exactly right place, there's going to be a massacre. Yeah. Which means that George is pretty close to it possibly going wrong. Yeah. And so yeah. if you turn this the other way, let's say one, you know, a truck runs out of gas or some something happens that happens in battle that changes the timing and those soldiers get trapped on the beach and wiped out. Well, then he just cost thousands of lives yep. for his own ego. Yep. And so it, it happened to work. But this is the thing. This is why, like, that is a motivating force is so freaking dangerous. You're a very good man, Lucian. But you want to guard against being too conservative. Go on, have a drink. Excuse me, sir. I won't be drinking for the next couple of days. And he exits. 
great exit. You believe Truscott's right, huh? And I think this is such an interesting moment. No. But I do know that you're gambling with the lives of those boys just so you can beat Montgomery into Messina. Because what's so interesting to me about this moment, first of all, that he's totally nailed George. Yeah. But he says, do you think, I, do you think he's right? And he says, no. Omar agrees with Patton. Right. He thinks this is the right military strategy. He's just critical of his motivation. Yes, exactly. And rightfully so. There's one big difference between you and me, George. I do this job because I've been trained to do it. You do it because you love it. It's an interesting role for um, him to have because he just has to come in and be completely solid, say a great line. He doesn't have to do that much. <laughs> I mean, this is where Malden was at this stage of his career yeah. as well. You know, I mean, he's about to be on TV as well in the streets of San Francisco, like about a year or two later. Oh, that's true. Or or a few years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's it, this is where he was, you know, and, and, and in essence, he's covering George C. Scott's flank. As George, he's got barrels through this movie. Uh, totally. It's, it's, you know, Carl Malden covering his flank. It's the battle. We hear that General Truscott, who's the guy who is, is in trouble. And so George goes, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. And he goes down to the beach. And Truscott has got, it doesn't have his helmet on. He's looking at a map. And George is across the water. And he goes, how the hell did you get there? You get that outfit cranked up, you're going to be out of a job. And put that helmet on. Yes, sir. And I love there's like a bomb explodes in the water right in front of him. And this whole sequence, it's so fun. This And this is the opposite part of the movie is we talked about how troubling this guy is. But seeing him in battle is a yeah. blast. Yeah. He's having, it's just, we see him in a, in a Jeep and the shot is from behind and there's a whole column of trucks that are stopped that he drives through it all. It's a really cool shot and they're under fire from a strafing run and he pulls up to a bridge and these two mules who won't move on the bridge and all the army is in chaos and Patton loses it. A whole column get stalled and strafed on account of a couple of jackasses? What the hell is the matter with you? When he pulls out his gun, he kills both mules. Yeah which is completely the right choice, right? That is a hundred percent the right thing to do. There are people getting killed. You know, this is where you look at the balance and you go, yeah, I'm sorry about these animals yeah. and I'm sorry about this guy's property, but no, throw them over the bridge. They do. Uh, we see a bunch of guys pinned down and one of the officers is complaining about air support and George says, hell with that. Nobody's getting any air support. If you can't put some fire into this battalion, Colonel. I'll get somebody who can. Major? You the executive officer here? Yes, sir. Well, you're now the commanding officer. You got four hours to break through that beachhead down there. If you don't make it by then, I'll fire you. And he walks away, and the colonel's just standing there totally stunned. <laughs> the major walks up to him and says, Colonel, there are 50,000 men on this island who would like to shoot that son of a bitch. <laughs> and then we see this moment, and this is the 70s. And that, this is a 70s moment as we see these yeah. wounded men. It's suddenly very quiet. Our pace has been really fast. Now the pace is really slow. Yeah. And George is sitting in his Jeep as wounded men go by. It's a low angle. There's a body in the foreground and he sits calmly and quietly. And the most disturbing moment is one of the men going by goes, Please take me home. Take me home. Please take me home. Over and over again. Over and over again. Yeah. And George just sits. Mm -hmm. And this is in such contrast to him shooting the mules or him yelling right. at the, you know, it's, it was active, 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 loud. And now this is the cost. There he goes. Oh, blood and guts. Yeah, our blood, his guts. We've reached the hospital. The first half of the scene, George Patton is exactly what he should be. That's a great setup. Yeah. He, he talks to the wounded men, connects with them. 
there's a man that's unconscious and he kneels down clearly moved, which he was. He was a very emotional guy. Yep. He wept a lot in front of other people. Wow. And pins a medal on him and then prays silently. And you see the the other patients and the doctors and the nurses all watching this guy with real reverence. Yeah. And it's such an important setup because of what's about to happen. Yeah. What's the matter with you? Uh, I guess I just can't take it, sir. And I think his performance is great, by the way, the soldier. Oh, the soldier, yeah. It's my nerves, sir. I, I, I just can't stand the shelling anymore. Your nerves? Well, hell, you're just a goddamn coward. And he stands up and we're in like a low angle. And he looks huge, and he slaps the guy's helmet. Shut up! We have a yellow bastard sitting here crying in front of these brave men who've been wounded in battle. Now the guy's just sobbing, and he yells, shut up, and he knocks the helmet off his head. Shut up! And now all the dog, everyone's stunned. The patients are sitting up. Everyone is shocked by what's happening. He says, I won't have sons of bitches who are afraid to fight stinking up this place of honor. You're going back to the front, my friend. You may get shot, you may get killed, but you're going up to the fighting. Either that or I'm going to stand you up in front of a firing squad. I ought to shoot you myself, you goddamn bastard. Get him out of here. Goes to reach for his yeah. gun. It's incredible. Send him up to the front. You hear me? You goddamn coward. And then he kind of gets himself under control and realizes he's lost it in front of this people. I don't have cowards in my army. As if it's somehow an excuse for what he did. Patton didn't slap just one guy. He slapped two guys. Mm. And he didn't just reach for his weapon. He drew his weapon and aimed at the guy's face. Jesus. Yeah. This is what he wrote in his diary that night. He wrote, I probably saved that man's soul. Self-aggrandizement. Yeah. This is akin to what happened to Woody Hayes in college football, Ohio State college football. Woody had become so enamored with himself and become such a stalwart at Ohio State that there was, a, towards the tail end of his, and really he was fired after this, but after towards the tail end of his career, he, uh, after a particular uh, incident between the uh, other team and his team, they slammed into it. There was like was a little bit of fighting going on. Woody, I think Woody comes, and he punches the player in the face twice, which is, of course, once again, Hoosier's reference. Uh, which, you know, because uh, Hackman's right, right, right. punches. Yeah. So once he, and when he does that, it's the old school thing of him thinking he can dole out that kind of justice to what he deems to be a cowardly act by the other team. And that ends up getting him fired. And he's like, I don't know, just kind of ridiculed for it or, and, and taking a task for it. And it's that thing. You can be tough as you want to people who are willing to receive it. The second you slap someone who's overwhelmed by the moment or overwhelmed by the situation, uh, it speaks so ill of you as a human being. Because all of us have moments where we experience that we're overwhelmed by a situation, you know. And how would we like it if someone came along and slapped us in the helmet or slapped us or pulled a gun on us, for God's sakes, you know. What if a general came up and watched Patton crying in front of a soldier and was like, what's wrong with you crying in front of, don't you show that weakness in front of that, and slapped Patton in the face. How would he feel about that, you know, so... There's so much about this moment. I mean, obviously, this is the this is the turning point. This is the the fulcrum on which this film turns. Yeah. But the our view on this has evolved. So and we, this has come up on our show before. But that that there was a time when there was this thing called being shell shocked. Yes. You right. know, 
And then there, there's this thing called battle fatigue, which is what we call it now, then. And there's another name, which I can't remember what it is. And now we get to today where it's PTSD. Right. And we've evolved so much in our way of thinking about this, that this is not, it's not that there are brave people and there are cowardly people. It's that there is a cumulative effect of being in a war and going through traumatic events. And even, you know, American sniper or whatever, like there yeah. could be people who were extremely brave and are still have these moments of just being overwhelmed emotionally. Yeah. So, I mean, I think watching this now, our, I think our experiences have, has changed a little bit and seen it. But the other thing about this is what is that whole first speech about? Americans traditionally love to fight yeah. and cannot tolerate a loser. His whole framing of masculinity, of being a soldier, of what being an American is, is all about physical courage. And then yeah. he even says, I know some of you are worried that maybe you'll get scared, right. but when you reach your hand in the pile of goo, you'll know what to do. You know, and 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 this is the the refutation of that moment, because I don't think he knows anything about what the emotions this guy's experiencing are. Right. You know, he thinks, oh, you just if you're afraid, you just overcome it. And then you are brave and you will be fine. And then you will feel like a man and that is good. Right. And that he doesn't understand what is happening to this guy. I mean, he literally says, I think I saved that guy's soul. <laughs> it, it's just awful. Yeah. I had to kick a few butts up there, but uh, Truscott finally broke through those people on the beach. Have you seen the casualty list? Yes, I've seen them. And he tells him, you know, get dressed because we're going to have a big cell of parade going into the city. You go ahead, George. I'm not very good at that. General Bradley, it's time to consider just how many casualties we'd have if we were still down there crawling along that goddamn road. And we can't know the answer. Right. right. We don't know what Omar's strategy would have been. We don't know what the casualties would have been. And there are certainly times to be aggressive, to go yeah. for it, 100%. And the big question, I think, is does your motivation matter, particularly when it comes to war? And I think that's what this is that... It's funny, I don't know how to put this. We're going through a time where we're really reconsidering what behaviors are appropriate in certain yeah. situations. Yeah. And I think in this moment in time, the decision was made over and over and over again that George S. Patton was worth it. Mm -hmm. That the war was so important and so serious that this particular person who violates so many rules and is such an egotist and a prima donna pain in the ass is still worth it. It's a necessary evil. And today, I think we would not make that decision. I mean, if you heard a general had slapped a soldier today, that guy's oh, right. out. He's yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. But for some people, ego and spite and anger and jealousy and all those motivations, you know, like for me, um, you know, I've mentioned several times there's this friend of mine who's no longer my friend. And that was a very, very painful time in my life. And this is the guy I did martial arts with forever. Mm -hmm. And our friendship ended before I got my black belt. And... I think there is a possibility that if I hadn't had that experience of my friendship ending, I might not have gotten my black belt and maybe, or maybe not as quickly. And I certain, maybe I wouldn't have gotten the second degree black belt and I wouldn't have started teaching because I thought of him for years, every time I stepped onto the mat mm -hmm. and it wasn't spite. It wasn't right. anger that was, but it was like, I wasn't quitting. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And, and so like, that's not a very worthy motivation to do a worthy thing. Right. Or, you know, you go on a diet out of because of vanity, because you want people to like your appearance or you, uh, you know, there's all sorts of things we do that are positive things that are good for us, but maybe have a not so positive motivation down at your core. Right. Right. You know, yeah. he saved your soul. Is that what you want yep. to say?
We're in Messina. <laughs> yes, he saved my soul. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> We're in Messina. The yeah. English are marching in with their bagpipes. And the bagpipes turn the corner and they kind of go. Little Animal House moment. <laughs> totally. Well, and that's the song that they play is the same yeah. song in the scene from Animal House. And and, and uh, there's Montgomery and he sees the U.S. military there and Patton's there smiling. Don't smirk, Patton. I shan't kiss you. Pity. I shaved very close this morning in preparation for getting smacked by you. <laughs> and their little fake smiles is just great. Oh, yeah. And this is a real celebratory moment. And then we cut to a moment whose emotions are completely the opposite. Patton is alone sitting in a very fancy room, which he's in a lot in this movie. Yeah. And Omar comes in and he Patton says, I got a letter from Ike. And as Omar sits to read, Patton starts talking about reading Caesar's commentaries, which by the way, was what Coppola was reading when he wrote the script. Right. That's why Caesar's commentaries come up a lot. Oh, in battle, Caesar wore a red robe to distinguish him from his man. I was struck by that fact because. And then he stops and his total emotion changes. And you can see he's trying to put up a front, you know, in talking about this Caesar thing. And then he says, despicable. That's the first time in my life. Anybody ever applied that word to me. And Omar tries to lessen the blow. He says, well, at least it's a personal reprimand. It's not official. And Patton just goes, the man was yellow. He should have been tried and shot. My God, have they forgotten about all the people who've taken a hell of a lot worse than a little kick in the pants? I ruffled his pride a little bit. What's that compared to war? Two weeks ago when we took Palermo, they called me a hero. Said it was the greatest general since Stonewall Jackson. And now they draw cartoons about you. And there's a cartoon of him with an iron boot with a swastika on it, kicking a soldier. Swastika on my boot. And what's funny, if you watch um, uh, Carl Malden, he's kind of just thinks it's funny. Yes. Yeah. Cartoon. Because he's not, if someone made a silly cartoon about him, he would go, oh, whatever. Yeah. And, but it's not funny to Patton. And he's now we hear that he's going to have to not only apologize to the soldiers, but all the doctors, all the nurses, all the patients and the entire Seventh Army as a whole. Yeah. Wow. Last thing he says, God, I feel low. Here's what happened after the slaps. The complaint from the doctors in both hospitals where the two slaps took place go up the chain of command. And each officer hands it to the commanding officer, to the next commanding officer, until it gets to Omar Bradley. And Omar Bradley has the choice. He's supposed wow. to submit it to his commanding officer. All right. And he has really turned against Patton at this point because he didn't like his behavior throughout the Battle of Sicily. And he spent a long time debating what to do. And he took the complaint and he locked it up in his safe. He hit it. Wow. Yeah. So how did it get out? So, but the report kind of goes around and it finally gets to Ike. Mm. And Ike is going, what do I do with this? And he decided to keep it under wraps. Wow. So he hit it as well, but he wrote a true, this is a, apparently a truly scathing letter to, to Ike. Ike. I mean, to Patton. Man. Made Patton cry. <laughs> um, what are you crying about? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this is the moment at which Eisenhower decided at this moment that Patton would never rise above army command. So he could com command an army, but he couldn't command a combined force. Yeah. That, that was, he was never going to do that. He was not capable of it. You know who um, I kept thinking about with Patton? Ego, emotional. It's a weird one. Steve Jobs. Mm. Brutal, abusive, brilliant, singular, 
Steve Jobs would burst into tears, you know, in situations. He would insult people. He would bully people. All And this big ego that just had to get what he wanted, yeah. you know. We're in church. Patton is praying. Um, it's a very strange prayer. Um, he, we're hearing it in voiceover. And he gets up and he walks out in front of the troops and we hear at ease. And there's some weird parallel between this speech and the speech at the opening. Yes, agreed. It is not as apologies go. No, it's <laughs> a particularly not good one. It's one of those ones where they go, I'm sorry if anything I said offended you. It's yeah. not saying I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. yeah. And this is one of the keys to apologies. If you spend most of your time explaining what your motivation was and why the thing you did was right and only had a tiny, tiny time amount of time apologizing, it's yeah. not that good. You don't really believe in it. Yeah. My sole purpose was to try to restore in him some appreciation of his obligations as a man and as a soldier. If one can shame a coward, I felt one might help him to regain his self-respect. This was on my mind. So what he's done is he's continuing to insult him. Oh, yeah. You are a coward. You are not a man. You are failing as a soldier. Right. And then he says his method was wrong. So his motivation was fine. His method was wrong. Now I freely admit that my method was wrong, but I hope you can understand my motive and will accept this explanation and this apology. Yeah. <laughs> Begrudgingly. And then dismissed. Yeah. yeah, it's so begrudging. No further questions. Yeah, that's it. And he gets back to his quarters and his, you know, kiss-assy aide says, you know, I took in a poll and most of the people are for you. And then we hear he's been relieved of 7th Army. And again, his aide says, oh, well, that's probably because he's going to make you the commander of the combined force. Let's go have some drinks. We go have some drinks. And now it's later and it's his bedroom. And there's his, you know, his uh, body man, I guess, George, um, who I actually like this relationship, I think. Yeah. Yeah. African-American guy. And this guy's being real nice. Like, mm -hmm. can I get you some milk? You want a sleeping pill? You know, can I tuck you in? Are you going to be okay? What's going on here anyway? Well, I heard the news tonight, sir. They announced it on the radio. What news? It's about General Bradley, sir. How they gave him the top American command for the invasion. And again, Jersey Scott's performance of just going, oh, yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, I, well, I just thought you might be feeling kind of low, sir. <laughs> um, and we walk into this completely ridiculously ornate bedroom. One measly little slap. That's what we're done. Oh, George. I wish I'd kissed the son of a bitch. Once again, walking back what he did. Right? Yep. And the, the contrast between where we were in the battle and just the like, oh my God, this, this is awesome feeling yeah. to where we are right now sitting with this guy. It's huge. Yeah. And it's a weird place to have an intermission. Yeah. You know, because it's because it's a real downer. Yep. I, I'm watching this documentary on epics right now on George Foreman. And uh, just we start, I stopped about 45 minutes, 50 minutes in. It's funny. It makes me think of this moment because of what you just said, Steve. George Foreman said, when I went to Zaire, all those people in the um, in the airport, the baggage handlers, they wouldn't even look at me because I was the heavyweight champion. They were like ashamed to look at me because I was like so proud. After I lost my belt to Ali, 
when I came back, all those same baggage handlers were patting me on the shoulder. No problem. Hey, you'll get them next time. But like as if they were familiar with me. And that's the difference between a champion and falling off mm. your championship. And I and he's like, and I hated wow. that feeling. I that's hated interesting that feeling. And it was just fascinating because he's like, I liked it when they revered me. I hated when they felt they were on my level to even touch me. Mm. And this is fascinating, right? It's a fascinating. Of course, George uh, went through an incredible convergence of himself emotionally and all that. But sure. at that time, that's how he felt, right? And it's the same moment here with Patton. He's like, I, I was the king of the world. And I slapped one guy or two guys in real life. And I'm now, uh, you know, relieved of command and turned and I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. You know? Well, and I think one of the interesting things about Patton is in revealing his desire to beat Monty and revealing his putting the three stars on before he officially was supposed to happen yeah. in revealing that it was about ego and that he was his favorite general and that right. he lost face because he didn't actually face Rommel. Rommel wasn't really there in revealing all these things. He's actually revealed his vulnerabilities yeah. to everyone. Yeah. He's, you know, because the flip side of the big ego and aren't I awesome is I'm really, really insecure. Yeah. And so when he comes in and everyone is buttering him up, including George, you know, saying you want some milk and, you know, I thought you'd be feeling, is that he's really exposed in this moment. And yeah. particularly because he just had to do this apology in front of all the troops. And that, and because the other thing about it is that he has created this image of himself as this iconic, brutal, tough guy. Yeah. You know, and now he has exposed that to be false to everyone. And so it's a really low point. And like, because you think about the end of the first act of Lawrence of Arabia, or you think of, you know, it's like there, there, there's positivity a little bit going in, even though second half of Lawrence of Arabia gets really, really heavy. Yeah. But this one is like, man, this is a downer. And again, this is sort of that mix of World War II old school movie and Vietnam era movie. Yeah. Um, one thing by this, so, so, Ike and Marshall have been talking a lot about who is going to lead the Allied command. And the big description was they need someone that has great combat skills, great logistical skills, is a great di uh, diplomat, and a great team player. They were never considering Patton for the job. <laughs> yeah, never. Exactly, yeah. They picked Omar Bradley real early. Right. Um, and Bra Patton wrote in his di diary that Brad was a kiss-ass. Mm. And he just ripped it up Eisenhower. He ripped up Marshall. He was pissed. Yeah. It's not my fault. It's everyone else. Everyone else's fault. And that is where we have reached the end, I think, of part one of our exploration of a big movie, Patton. John, do you have anything you want to add before we uh, break for this time? Not, not much, except just to say, I hope you all are enjoying uh, this uh, particular breakdown of this uh, first half of the movie. The second half of the movie, as uh, Steve said, is going to get... Uh, it's going to be another uh, emotional roller coaster ride as well. So I hope you're enjoying our analysis. And in between part one and part two, make sure to let us know what you think of our uh, points of views on this, especially if Rachel Cushing is listening to this, who loves this movie like crazy. Let us know uh, in between part one and part two, if you're listening in between part one and part two, what you think about how we're breaking down and analyzing this movie as well. And if we've missed anything in our approach or appreciation of all the characters involved in this movie. Um, and let us know what you think on our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. Subscribe to the show at iTunes or Stitcher or YouTube or Spotify. Um, leave your reviews on iTunes, please. If you haven't done a review yet, I think it's time. You might even go up in the ranks 
or we might go up in the ranks with your review. Um, leave your comments on YouTube. YouTube. You can support the show with our all new tiers, all sorts of great stuff on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can buy Patton or any other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. You can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris, on Instagram at SR Morris one. Uh, you can reach the cinephiles on Twitter at cine underscore files with an F on Instagram with the cinephiles podcast. And John, how would they reach you? You can always reach me at the Roka says on Twitter and on Instagram. And of course, come on over to my, uh, my YouTube channel as well. YouTube.com slash John Roka says a lot of great content rolling through there. Uh, the outlaw nation mornings with the outlaw game time, uh, reviews, trailer reactions, all of that. And I've got two new shows coming up. And if one, one might debut before, uh, before this episode drops, we shall see. Uh, but certainly one that will open the doors for a lot of interesting conversations as well. So just go on over there and see all the content we got going on and subscribe to the channel. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next week with part two of Patton. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.